Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at newbalance.com. Welcome in to the Otson Audibles podcast. Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on the show. Welcome to your Monday edition of the podcast. It's a mailbag. We're going to dive into uh, a lot of questions surrounding what transpired in Lubbock. And we should say, like, hey, like, all three of us took different flights, different days getting out to Lubbock, Texas. All three of us bumped into Duck fans. That was really cool to see, whether it was in the airport uh, whether it was at the game or in the surrounding areas of Lubbock, Texas. Uh, we heard from a lot of you guys that went. Always awesome to, to hear and to see and meet Duck fans who take in our work. Uh, and it was just one of those like things that you, it's, a, it's a reassurance that we're doing a good job here, that, that we're putting out a product that people enjoy, uh, and it's always good to hear. So a lot of appreciation to all of you who came up to us, uh, continue to do that. doesn't bother us at all. Yeah. I was going to say, I spent a couple hours in the Lubbock airport before my flight and didn't have much to do. There wasn't a lot of TVs available, even though it was the first day of NFL Sunday I was kind of bummed out and, uh, chatted with a couple of folks, people, Scopel Domus, a couple of people said as they walked up. So that was, that's great. I, I really appreciate that. And as Matt said, don't hesitate if you see us to just come say hi. Um, because we, we do appreciate that. Now, if you're going to tell us our work stinks, well, <laughs> you can do that too. You can still do that. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> Go for it. Um, should we jump in? Yeah. All right. First one mm-hmm. from at ZBGreen1. After reviewing the film, what are Oregon's most glaring weaknesses and points of concerns from a position group perspective? Have these changed for your relative to your op- opinions from fall camp? To the first one, um, I mean, I, it's kind of what we talked about to a certain degree in post game. I don't think a lot surprised me. I, I would say offensively, it was just the offensive line and the interior had a really rough day, um, especially on run blocks. You go watch the, I think it was pretty symptomatic of the day as a whole for, for Marcus Harper at left guard, the, the, the touchdown that gets wiped off on the, the Jordan James run where he just gets beat. He has to grab the guy and, and that's where the play comes back. And, and, and you saw that a decent amount where he just, he just didn't hold up great. I thought the, I actually thought the tackles were, were fine aside from Connerly having um, mm-hmm. some pre-snap problems like that. I, I thought he had, I mean, there are people on the message board that were losing their minds that were frustrated as the former five-star spelling his name. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Yeah. Josh Connolly. Uh, Connolly, Dan Connolly. He's an Irishman. Um, but I thought, I actually thought he played perfectly fine aside from some of those early pre-snap things. And again, that had to do with the cadence. Um, so it, it, to me, it's the interior and Jack Spars Johnson was great. I didn't think there was, I mean, I think he graded out from PFF just about as well as he and a Johnny were the, the two uh, highest rated offensive linemen. And that kind of, sh- that, 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 that uh, was in line with what I watched. Um, and then I guess defensively, I, I felt like the linebackers again, there was, there was, that was where some of the issues were on, on rundowns, especially a couple of those shuck plays where it just seemed like guys were a little slow to react, got caught a little flat-footed. Um, 
you know, when the guy, when those guys are attacking and getting upfield, you see what happens, right? I mean, that, the, the two of the big turnovers in that game were because linebackers were charging upfield. Jamal Hill gets up there. He forces the fumble. Dorless recovers it. Uh, Jeffrey Boss is in position to make that interception because he's charging and following Dorless there, um, who, who makes contact for the pick six. So, like, when those guys are, are heading upfield and going and are confident, they make plays. It's just there's some times where they kind of get caught, seems like kind of waiting, trying to process what's going on. And it makes a little sense with some of those guys because they're, they're they're converted safeties. Do you disagree, Jared? You, you didn't see that? I, I saw that quite a bit. Yeah, I I just felt like that was the Texas Tech offense. It was a ton of RPOs. It was trying right. to catch Oregon's linebackers flat-footed because they just don't know whether to to go right after the running back or the quarterback or to sit back and drop into pass coverage. That's what's great about the RPOs. So yeah. I think I understand what you're saying, where it looked like they were a step slow, but it's because they were. They had to wait to see whether the running back or the quarterback took the ball. And a really good example of that actually is the um, the touchdown on the slant to Tharp, where yeah. where uh, it's yeah. a RPO read with a slant on behind it, and Brian Addison there is kind of having to wait and see what the read is, and you see him leak out there, and if he's able to make that decision, I'm not saying it's his fault because it's it's a good offensive skill, but like no, it's a good offense. Yeah, it's a good play. If he's able to plant and go a step sooner, he might have picked that off, or he would have been in position to make a play there. Instead, it's a clear passing lane. You got a six nine guy against a five ten guy, and that's going to be a, a win every time. So, um, do we want to? I I, th I think there are positives we can get into too, but maybe we just pass the ball around here and we can talk well, about other things I, that stood out from a weakness perspective. I I think it's telling that you look at the pff grades and jamal hill evan williams jeffrey bossa and bryce betcher were all terrible against the run um whether that's texas tech's offense and doing what they're designed or that's the lack of execution by oregon's linebackers and safety um the guys that you would think are going to be in play here against the run it, it was a combination of both i i think i think Eric's right in that I don't think these guys played good. And I think Jared's right that Oregon didn't play good and Texas Tech took advantage of that and went right at it and found something there. And now it's going to be on Dan Lanning and the staff to fix that because opponents are going to replicate that. I got a text from someone in our network, Bud Elliott, last night. We were talking about the game, and he said the, the blueprint's out now of, of how to move the ball on Oregon, and it's going to be up to Oregon to, to kind of adjust and – and figure it out um but yeah like the the linebackers just weren't good against the run and that is a concern that was an issue that oregon had last season um that they just weren't effective there now the the middle of the defense was solid in against the pass and you know you have to acknowledge that as well so it's you know you're going to face some teams that are going to probably go at Oregon's linebackers from a running perspective, whether it's misdirection or it's powered runs that they did with, with Shuck or whether it's, you know, zone read type stuff. I um, I really didn't think Oregon's rush D was, was that bad yesterday. Uh, I rewatched the game a couple of times and obviously you get the Shuck, the 58 yarder to, to start out the game, which totally will impact how the, the, the overall numbers look, the stats look. And, you know, again, there's the, um, the sacks that, take away from the rush yardage, which is always really dumb, but that, that helps. That's in favor of Oregon this time around. Um, I thought it certainly could have been better. Um, I mean, there were moments against Hawaii where it didn't look great on the rush defense and, and both linebackers and the interior defensive line. Um, but their running backs, they had one good carry, um, and I still feel like they, they did their job overall. 
Um, I think the linebackers, I mean, when we're comparing this Oregon defense to last year's Oregon defense, I thought the linebackers were night and day better. I agree. I thought the overall defense was night and day better. I, I think Oregon agree. loses the game if it's last year's defense because despite the um, the longer touchdowns that Texas Tech had, like um, like the 34-yarder to um, Bradley. Like Bradley in the right corner of the end zone, like go back and watch that play. It was an awesome play. Awesome route. Yep. Yeah. It was a it was a fake wide receiver screen where he just he's blocking Nico Reed and then throws him aside and runs right past him. It's a beautifully executed play. Like Texas Tech's offense last night, or not last night, but Saturday night was really good. They put everything they had on the field against Oregon's defense. And I thought that they did pretty well. I know the 30 points and the long touchdowns and I know Tyler Shuck doing it doesn't make it any easier, but um, in my mind, I thought they played pretty well compared, like considering what they were going against. There are certainly areas that they need to improve on. Um, rush defense is one of them. Um, communication is one of them. And I think figuring out a rotation that works best for the defensive line is, is another one. But um, I think it's, I think there are, like Eric said, I think there are some positives that came from it, but yeah. Um, there's certainly yeah, think, a, a lot to work on. I think my point is like, yeah, the defense last year would have lost in the game, but that still doesn't mean it's good enough. And they're going to play tougher, way tougher offenses uh, in, in conference play. USC, Washington, um, Oregon State is a, a powerhouse from a running the football type performance. And they need to make marketed big jumps of improvement. Now it's week two and you see teams make – the, the better teams in college football gradually get better. And so you have to acknowledge that. Like, I'm not sitting here saying it's doom and gloom. It's only week two. They're going to get better. I know that. But they're going to play way better offenses than what they saw against Texas Tech. And those teams are going to have way better players on their rosters. And if they perform like they did week two against a USC or against a Washington they are going to lose, and they aren't going to lose by one score. It, it's going. It could. It could get ugly if they play like that consistently. I think. Well, it's actually funny, Matt, because this question is framed about negative stuff. After watching the film, I actually felt really good about a lot of things that I didn't feel yeah. good about at the stadium. I agree. Um, yeah. So this question was kind of framed negatively. Maybe we shouldn't have started here. Like, I, if I was if I was going to start like what my film review was, it was like, there are some young guys that were awesome. Like Oregon nailed the outside linebacker class this year. And those guys are already mm -hmm. ready to play and are already like, frankly, better than Mace Funa and better than, I mean, Jake Shipley is not to be too just, uh, that's not a high bar to clear necessarily, but like, right. it's pretty clear who bet Oregon's best outside linebacker guys are right now. And it's primarily the young guys. It's primarily those mm -hmm. two freshmen who I thought played really well. Jaleel Florence. I was awesome. I thought he was fantastic yeah. out there. He was so a really good. freshman. He played 59 snaps. He handled himself really, really well. Like the one coverage bust, if you will, came on that wonky trick play, which again, I think that's good Texas Tech offense. That's hard to prepare for. You're like the, the, the quarterback, you know, it, it gets, the, you know, hands it off, ball comes back, he throws it down the field. Like that's how many times do we see teams defend that perfectly? Like not often. Like those are hard plays to defend. So, um, was the, is the defense need to get better? Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, to Matt's point, there definitely need to be improvements. Dan came out and said exactly that. And and I think the big thing that was frustrating for me was was not as much um, what happened on plays where there weren't flags, but what happened on plays where there were flags. Because th those were right. the instances where I think they panicked. That, that that's the, the, yeah, the panic came through. And I want to say on Twitter, I, I suggest in the moment that the Kyrie Jackson play was like maybe a necessary p pass interference. Having watched it again, he just lost track of the ball and saw a guy downfield yeah. and tried to destroy him and took him out. 
if 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 he has a better idea of where the ball is, he could have picked that off. It's that a wasn't pick. a particularly good throw. Oh, there so, you go. um, those things need to be worked on. I'm probably I do I do agree with Matt that the linebacker play needs to get better. Tech also deserves a lot of credit, I think, for creating some of those situations. Any more? Uh, any more? I guess any more reactions? I, we talked about linebackers and offensive line because that's where I started. Did you guys? Well, have I think uh, your your comment about like the outside linebacker edge types from a recruiting perspective is spot on because Mateo and Tatum Toyoti have basically become equals with Jordan Birch from a playing time standpoint. You know, they're used almost all the same. You know, from the snap count totals, nearly the same. Blake Purchase is probably in that group as well, just a little bit behind it. And I don't know if any of us would have thought that going in. Like, And it feels like Birch is only really in there on passing downs too. Like when he's, when he's out there, it, they're, they're anticipating pass. They're not, they're not thinking he's, you know, it's, it's going to be a run play. Um, but I, I'm with you. I think Mateo has looked really good. And then, Tuioti playing as much as he did week two. He didn't play week one because of injury, but playing how much he, you know, in that setting against that opponent in his first game, that's that's a pretty big deal, I think. You know, and Huffman was on the show this time last year, maybe a little later in the year, saying like if if his last name wasn't Tuioti and he didn't play his first three years of high school football in Nebraska and then his fourth year in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, he probably would have been a bigger name because everyone just assumed he was going wherever dad was coaching because that's just a combination that 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 seemed natural and it's that's coming true where it, this is a dude and he's probably going to be a better player than some expected because they just felt oh coach's kid he'll be talented but don't don't count on him right away. I, I also have some outside linebacker thoughts, but there's a question directly correlating to that later in the show. So I, I'm going to wait on that. Okay. And then do we want to touch on the, have things changed relative to our opinions of fall camp? I think the answer to that's just always going to be yes. Cause we saw so little in fall camp really. Yeah. I, I, I think my worries are, are similar. I think it's, yeah. um, you know, like Matt said, there's going to be tougher tests down the road starting with Colorado in week four. Um, and you'll really get a, a good idea. Um, I think you. I think you got a much better idea of how this defense performs, um, which was my biggest question mark going into the season. Uh, you know, you've got a much better idea of that after Saturday. Um, there's a. I mean, there were a, just a, a, an un, incomprehensible amount of mistakes by Oregon on Saturday that were rather surprising. So I think that's something that um, that's kind of changed my perspective from fall mm -hmm. camp in that category because you know Portland State. Didn't have, I think they had like one or maybe two penalties total. You know, racking up 14 is a different story. Um, and six of those directly led to Texas Tech first downs. Like, there were there were a lot of things where it's like, um, if Oregon had played their game, I think the score would have been much different um, and not had made so many mistakes. But uh, it wasn't, and they made the mistakes. So uh, to come out of Texas Tech with a victory was, was, was key. But I, I think my issues coming out of fall camp are, are still pretty much what they are today. Move on to number two in a second, but a quick aside. The Wyoming-Portland State game was a lot more close than I thought it would be, given how both those teams performed mm -hmm. against competition week one. That was 31-17, which I only saw, I think, Sunday morning as I was getting up. Uh, surprised it was that competitive. 
All right. Second one at Duck Fan Dan. Is our offense less dynamic than it was most of last season? It could be beginning of the year gelling or the new offensive line, but I'm worried that Stein won't be as good as Kenyon was until he got the ASU job. Hashtag odds and audibles. You guys, I don't know if everybody will agree on this. Um, I think this reminds me a lot of when RPOs became really popular in football. And everyone would be like, why are you calling so many run plays? You guys ran it so much. And it's like, well, there's a pass option to it. Like, I saw Bo take a lot of checkdowns. I, I saw tons of options downfield that he took the checkdown. And that's totally fine a lot of the time. I think a couple times he might have missed guys. Mm -hmm. But I didn't think it was an offensive, like, that was, like, necessarily less dynamic. I just think they didn't take the shots downfield aside from the obvious one to Troy early in the game. Um, right. I, I liked some of the run game stuff. I think they got a little too reliant on inside stuff on, on short yardage, but when they pitched it outside behind those tackles, it was great. We saw probably more of that on Saturday than we have in several years. Um, and I should note in rewatch, I noticed that they, 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 they uh, scored a couple of those as passes instead of runs, which is probably kind of skews some of that rushing totals we talked about after the game where we were frustrated and or at least concerned or maybe uncertain of why they didn't run it better. Like no, Whittington has a pitch for twenty-five yards that goes down as a a pass, as a pass because yeah. he's like slightly ahead of Bo. Which, if that counts as a run, that juices up the totals. And I think Bucky had might have had one, or Jordan definitely had one. So um, I'm not going to say don't be concerned or that Will is everything that Kenny was because I hold Kenny Dillingham in extremely high esteem. I think he's probably the best offensive coordinator Oregon has had since making sure I'm going through, I'm not forgetting anybody, but probably since Chip Kelly was here in terms of just an offensive mind, I, I think Kenny is awesome. I think he'll do well at Arizona state once he gets players. So I'm not ready to like say will is better. So maybe they are slightly less dynamic or the offensive play calling has taken a slight setback, but I was, I don't come away, especially on rewatch thinking, Oh man, that was terrible. What, what awful play calling. Um, I don't know. Do you guys agree with that? Or were you guys, uh, as concerns, it seems like some of these questions are. No, I, I agree with you. I, I think a lot of it is circumstances as well. Uh, we, we've talked about the penalties. Like that puts Will Stein in a tough position. Like That's you saw point. some yep. of like the, the the early drives of the game where Oregon didn't have any major penalties. Like and they just went down the field and did all these little creative things. Like um, I, I don't know, they did uh, like to, to Trayshawn Hold on the left side of the end zone that fake wide mm. receiver screen to go up top. Um, those were nice. Like, but. The thing about checkdowns is it's not pretty. It's not the sexy play. It's not throwing it deep. But what it allows an offense to do is get a couple yards. Like, and, you know, we saw Bo Nix get some pressure, scramble out, and drill his check down across the field. And, and someone would scoot up six or seven yards. That's a hell of a lot better than throwing a ball in jeopardy and throwing it over the middle and trying to make a big play out of something. Like, it's just – it's it's clean. It's fundamental football, and it's not fun at all. Like I get that, mm -hmm. um, but there were still good plays. There were still the deep balls, like Detroit Franklin. I, I upon further review, like I do think Bo Nix missed a couple of deep shots, and yep. maybe that's something that um, just happened in the heat of the moment. And Bo felt the pressure and didn't even look up and went to his check down and got a couple yards, which is fine. Like I'm, I'm not like Bo Nix was was great on Saturday against Texas Tech. Like, he's fine. But there were a couple missed shots, and they didn't even throw the ball. And maybe he connects on two of those, because I think there were, like, four or five total where it's like, well, that might have been a that might have been a ball that he could have thrown deep. But 
maybe he connects on two of those next game and all of a sudden it's two more touchdowns or an extra 60 to 80 yards in total offense. Like, I don't think Oregon's play calling was conservative. I think that if they wanted to run the ball more, they would have. But Texas Tech's interior line, like Eric mentioned, did a really good job against Oregon's interior offensive line and made it very difficult to run between the tackles. They had to go outside the tackles. And once Texas Tech realized that they were only going to go outside the tackles, then they real then they put their defense to say, hey, cover outside the tackles. And so it kind of put Will Stein and the, and the rushing attack into a bind. And that's what good defenses do. But good offenses adjust. They have little checkdowns. They have fake wide receiver screens. They have real wide receiver screens. They have halfback screens. They do all these different ways to simulate the running attack. And uh, so I don't. I, I think there were some moments where it was conservative, um, but I think that's just kind of nitpicky. Um, I think that overall, I'm not worried about the offense. They still put up almost 500 yards of offense and scored 38 or 31 points. Like I, I think they'll be okay. There's not much more to say other than the fact that Bodix, I agree with Jared, that there were opportunities missed. Um, he had Kenyon Sadiq and Casey Kelly wide open for touchdowns that he went to the other receivers um, on checkdowns. He went to uh, – he missed a Tez Johnson across the middle. Don't know if it would have been a touchdown. Certainly was in play for one, but it would have been a huge game. Yep. Uh, and, he, and he went to Troy Franklin, which ended up being, I think, a, a catch. But, you know, and these are just nitpicking things. These are, you know – the grand scheme of things, like Jared said, they still put up over 500 yards of total offense. And the check down thing, like, it's 100% something they should be doing. Because it, who is, like, one of, who, who are Oregon's best playmakers with the ball in their hand? Bucky Irving. Th- Running backs. Yeah, there's two or three guys that you come up with. It, it's Bucky Irving and it's probably Troy Franklin. Those are probably the two guys that you say, we need you to get seven yards and we need you to make someone miss. And those are the two names that you're going to throw out probably first in that order, Bucky and then Troy, and then probably Noah Whittington would be the third one. Um, And those are all the checkdowns. Those are the targets that they go to. It's literally just Bo saying, I'm trusting, I'm going to get one yard on this throw and I'm trusting that Bucky Irving is going to make a defender miss. Or what have we said since last season? that Bucky Irving like never goes backwards on, on a hit. He always falls forward. Mm-hmm. It's very rare that he falls backwards on, on a tackle. And Oregon's, all of Oregon's running backs on these checkdowns and on the runs and everything, they initiate contact, they fall forward, and they always make sure instead of getting stuffed and stonewalled like Tyler Shuck did on that fourth down where he gets zero yards or gets pushed back, they always fall forward. And so it's Oregon just basically saying, we trust our playmaker, our best playmaker to make someone miss and turn a two-yard catch into a six- or a seven-yard catch. And I, I think a big chunk of – I wish I could find this um, in the stat broadcast, but second quarter when they struggled and the third quarter when they struggled, I'd be really curious to know what the success rate was when they got positive yards on first down and they were ahead of schedule going into second down. And then you go and you look at the drives where they had a false start or they had some kind of holding penalty and they faced the first and 15 or what have you. And then they faced a second and eight or a second and 10. And they're now they're, they're behind schedule. And I would be really curious to go and look at the pass differential, pass to run differentials between those drives too, of when they, when they were, when they, when they got a snap off on first down without committing a penalty 
self-inflicted wound or they they were able to you know pull off the play i bet you a lot of those were probably more runs than passes they, they probably ran the ball more on first down than second down which then gives you an opportunity when you're in second down to take shots to be aggressive go play action because you know on third down it's only third and three third and four you can get that with a run or or some kind of quick pass so um, I'm not concerned about the offense. I'm not concerned about the offensive play calling. I think it's really good. I think Kenny Dillingham was a home run hire for Oregon last season. And like Eric said, of one of the better coordinators we've had at Oregon in a long time. But to sit here and complain that Will Stein isn't doing a good job, that he, he's not good, this offense has major issues. I know that's not what the question said, but I saw that narrative out there on, on the site and on Twitter during the game, it's just it is just stupid. The, it, the, the offense is fine. They put up almost 600 yards on the road against Tech when they played about a C plus performance, in my opinion. You know, in that game. And I guess just the last thing I'd say on the the check down versus throwing down the field element. You know why? Part, big reason why Oregon won this game, the turnover battle. Yeah. And if Nick's throws the ball mm-hmm. over the middle of the field a bunch rather than taking the check down, maybe he forces it. And I'm not saying there weren't instances where he had wide open players that wouldn't be forcing it. But if he's forcing it down there, that's where you see turnovers happen, right? That's where two uh, yeah, two of Tyler Shuck's turnovers happened down the middle of the field, or at least down the field. One of them was to Kyrie, I guess, past the, the right hash. But th- that's where problems happen. So. Um, if we were recording this podcast today and Bo Nix had thrown more of those down the field and a couple of them picked off and Oregon had lost the game, we'd be having a different conversation that would also be critical. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll dive into the second half of the podcast. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Two questions in. We've got three more to go around what's probably basically all Oregon football, which it should be it's, right now. It's going to be all Oregon football. Yeah. We don't even need to say that anymore, Matt. It's going to be that way all yeah. fall. I think maybe we'll have a mailbag when basketball season starts. It's just basketball, but this is going to be – Football, no, we're football, not going to have football. that. No, <laughs> it's going to be it probably. Won't. I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't even introduce that possibility because that's not happen. <laughs> uh, all right, third one from at Jameson White sixteen. I think this is a new question to ask her, so thanks for asking, Jameson. Small sample size, but tackling felt improved from last year. Did anybody impress you in that area? Did you feel like we could be in better position pre-snap? Um, he also has a second question, but 
we'll get to that one after this one. I did think tackling for the most part has been better um, than it started last year, but that's setting the bar very low because um, mm -hmm. against Georgia last year, I actually don't, I wish I pulled this up on PFF. Do you guys remember what the total was? Wasn't it like 35 or 40 missed tackles? Or, or missed something? tackles? Something No, silly but I can go Georgia. look it up real quick. Yeah, take a look. Cause I was going to contrast that just to, to Saturday where um, they missed uh, nine tackles all game, which is, you know, you want to have those back. Brian Addison missed three. Evan Williams missed three. And if you go back and watch the Evan, those missed tackles by Evan, some of those were it was sort 20. of It's 20. Okay. So I was a little bit hyperbolic. It felt like that many in my head, but still 20 is a rather large number um, for a, for a single football game, but it was, it was nine. So if, if we, th if your fans thought nine felt like a lot compared to 20 last year, it's definitely improved. And I should also acknowledge last year, and this surprised me when I was looking kind of back at what PFF said last year, Oregon finished the season, at least based on PFF grades, as the 15th best tackling team in the country, which I don't think any of us felt when we were watching them play. But as the year went on, it definitely got better. They're definitely starting at a better place this year. Um, if we want to talk about the best tackling grades on the team, because that is a thing that PFF tracks, and that's sort of the question, um, top five on the team, according to PFF, were Taishim Johnson, Tatum Tuioti, Jaleel Florence, Jamal Hill, and Steve Stevens. Um, Ty Sheem had kind of an up and down game in terms of some coverage stuff, but that guy in the open field is a stud. And that's exactly what you mm -hmm. need there. They, you know, not that they were terrible, as we said a second ago, last year in some of those areas, but Ty Sheem is an upgrade. I know there were some fans who were frustrated about a couple of those plays. I think we've already maybe talked about the, the one touchdown where he was caught a little flat-footed. Guy beats him on like a corner route to the end zone. He was also matched up on like a seven-foot person one time, which is just like, good luck. Good luck. Try to try to defend that. See what you can do. I thought he played pretty darn well for the most part. Um, I don't know, Jared. Was there anybody on rewatch that I didn't mention? Maybe that you stood out that that had made some some big plays in open field. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anybody for me. It wasn't. No, I, I don't really think that there was another guy to mention in terms of open field tackling. Um, Evan Williams, Tyshim Johnson did well. I know Evan had a couple missed tackles, but like one of those missed tackles was. A really good play where like he comes down on a on a run commit from the second level and breaks through the offensive line, makes them miss, and then hits the guy. He just doesn't bring him down. Like he he showed what he can do in the open field. Um, what I thought was really good about Oregon's defense in terms of their tackling was a lot of it were were more multiple hats in the ball, like yep. two guys, three guys at a time. Um, something that had kind of been missing from last year's defense where they were all like a step slow into and getting to whoever had the football. Um, I thought that they played faster on that end. And I think that's why the tackling was better. So they just had multiple guys, multiple hats on the ball. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have anybody specific. I think I, I thought Oregon did a, did a much better job in general of wrapping up the quarterback. Um, I thought that was a huge problem last year. I have stats to prove it, but we're going to save that for a different opportunity. Yep. Um, like Mateo had one big miss, um, even though he had an outstanding move to get to the quarterback, he still missed Chuck. But I think in general, I thought that they were much better just bringing down the quarterback, whether that was one-on-one -on -one or it was a gang tackle. Like I thought they were just better at that. So uh, Evan Williams' comment about being – a more feared and respected defense this season than, you know, that one of the things he talked about was everyone rallying to the football and finishing off plays collectively. And to Jared's point, like we saw more of that this game, we saw, 
you know, like I, I think of, I keep, I've mentioned it a bunch of times in different scenarios, but the, the fourth down stop, like it wasn't just a linebacker plugging the hole. It was two or three guys getting to the play and finishing it off. Um, the Jamal Hill hit, um, you know, those are plays where there's more than one or two guys around the football. Um, when that fumble happened, there was like three ducks trying to pick it up. And, you know, like those are the things on film that don't show up on the stat sheet. There's no credit that goes around for that, but you're wanting to see dudes flying to the football and we're seeing it. And that's where when a guy does miss a tackle, it doesn't really get impacted all that much because your team is in position to make the play and you know, missed tackles are going to happen. But what you don't want are missed tackles and one-on-one scenarios in the open field, because that's when big plays can happen. That's when a 12 yard play could turn into a 40 yard play or a two yard play can turn into a first down. And Oregon has done a pretty good job of rallying to the ball and making sure they don't, you know, allow a ton of explosive plays. They had tech had a lot of them. They had, I think 14, explosive plays in that game uh, last night or two nights ago, um, 10 or more rushing yards or 15 or more passing yards. But a lot of it was just good offense making plays. There were a, a couple of them um, that Oregon missed tackles or just was out of position, but their ability to the rally of the football is the big thing that sticks out to me. Yeah. I mean, like the, the, probably the one missed tackle that is most prevalent in my mind at least is the Kyrie Jackson miss right towards the end of the game there that allows the receiver yeah. to get like mm-hmm. an extra eight yards but that was like one of the very few and then there was the the long rush by Brooks where there were a lot of guys around the ball and that guy gets ahead of steam at like 225 pounds he's just hard to take down and then my last thought here just to the point you guys made on the the, the gang tackling 58 total tackles recorded by Oregon and 16 of those were uh, assisted tackles so uh, to your point a lot, of, a lot of hats on the ball on, on several of those. Um, second part to Jamison's question, we'll keep this quick because we want to get to the last two. Um, is this a case of a really good team win when they play poorly or is there deeper issues? Hashtag Ots and um, I think it's the former. I, I think we've kind of already mm-hmm. established that we, we feel that way. I, I personally think we're going to learn a lot more against Colorado, um, but I don't think we need to change expectations. Oregon's two and zero. They won on the road and they won a game. Yeah, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think it was a really sloppy win, um, but a yes. win's a win. And I think if you're Dan and you're like all the coaching staff, you clearly have a lot of things to work on. But you're not you're not dwelling on it. You're you're moving on. You you have conquered that challenge of going on the road and winning. And now they have Hawaii this week and Colorado next week. I, yeah, I don't need to say more. Okay. I figured we were all going to do that, which is why I wanted just to breeze through that one. All right. Fourth one. And I'm just going to read the snap counts and just send it to Jared because I know he's got some thoughts here. But from at Bigfoot8801, noting the play count, Mateo outsnapped Birch seems significant, if not injury related, especially given the snaps at edge given to Purchase and Tatum. Who is the alpha in that room right now? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. And I'm just, like I said, I'm going to read the snap counts and then I'll let Jared because I know he's got some thoughts on this, but uh, in terms of the snaps, Mateo did play more than any of the players we just read. He played 36 snaps. Birch played 29. Tui played 25, uh, 26. I guess they've adjusted it a little bit because I think it was 25 when I looked yesterday. Um, and then Purchase and Funa played about the same number. 14 for Funa, 12 for Purchase, 13 for Winston, I guess we should note. And Jake Shipley played nine snaps. So those are kind of the guys in that group. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I I don't know if it's major concerns. Like I understand that Birch was the high profile transfer, um, and you want him to do well or you expect him to do well, and this defense pr- provides him an opportunity to do so. Um, and it's not like he's doing nothing out there. The the problem is when you look at the stat sheet at the end of the day, like his name isn't isn't really there. I don't. I think he had. Uh, let me pull up the stats in front of me here from from the game to the air on Saturday. Like he didn't he didn't have a stat. He didn't have a stat. And Mateo had you know three tackles, um, almost had a sack. Uh, I think PFF actually credited him with a sack, but that obviously was like the play where they they took the penalty instead of. Um, taking the sack like he's still making an impact he's still making it difficult for the offensive line on the opposing team he's still getting to the quarterback he's just not producing at a level that you would hope and expect him to do so um the other side of this is like it's not a problem because Mateo is good yeah like it's one thing if you know you would really expect Birch to come in and do something and then Mateo isn't doing anything like Mateo, I think to me is certainly exceeding expectations on what I expected him to be this year. I expected him to be a contributor and get on the field, probably just on third down is what I talked about most during the fall camp, like third and long, like, Hey, Mateo, you're young, you're fast, you're, you're lean, like go like came on Thibodeau when he was a freshman, go run after the quarterback on third and long, but he's out there a lot. I mean, that was his 56, uh, no, sorry, 36 total play count. Like that's, that was 10th on the team. Like that's, that's a lot. And that's a lot more than a, a bunch of other defensive linemen. Um, so I don't, I don't know if it's concerning yet. I'm Birch will have his moment. Mateo will have his moment. Um, I think that's just good defensive line depth. I don't think it's concerning at all. Um, and the edge, the, like the, the Tatum, uh, Blake Purchase, Jake Shipley, Mace Funas of the world. Um, I think like to Eric's point earlier, like I think it's clear that they feel better about who their true freshmen are than some guys who are returning. Um, I also think that Texas Tech's offense was um, not really great to just line up outside linebackers who can't jump into pass coverage or who can't really run around the field like Mace Funa, like Jake Shipley. Like when Funa and Shipley were on the field, that's where Texas Tech attacked. And when – Tatum was on the field and he was in pass coverage. That's where Texas Tech attacked. But I thought it was really surprising that Tatum Tuioti played as often as he did. Um, I thought that was a huge uh, like sub storyline for me. If there could be such a thing as a big little thing, because you know he doesn't play in week one. We don't really see him in fall camp. We heard nice things about him in the spring. We heard nice things about him in the, like the first week or two of fall camp. But then goes down with an injury. It looked like it might be a. Uh, kind of a serious injury or something yeah. crutches on at some point like we're like oh well that's not great but I didn't really have an expectation of what he would be as an outside linebacker um, but I thought he played pretty well I thought he was in on a lot of tackles I thought he held up well in his first college game you could tell he's probably not 100% but it's certainly not like he's 50% and out there playing like he looked good he looked athletic um Purchase is somebody who hasn't, I don't even know if he's recorded a stat in either of the two games he's played, but he, he gets significant roles out there. So I think to answer the final question of this, like who is the alpha in that room right now? It's still Birch. Like he's still the most experienced dude. He still has the pedigree of being a five-star and playing in South Carolina and doing all these things there and coming in here as the number one or the number one recruit in Oregon's transfer portal class. Like he's still the alpha, but He's got to go out and prove it, I think, at one point during the season. It might be 
Hawaii. He might get eight sacks against Hawaii. Who wow. Knows? But I know, right? But um, I love that. It would be fun. But uh, Mateo's certainly making a name for himself, and it's uh, it's been impressive to watch him, especially on the on the replays of like watching the film. Um, but I don't think it's a concern. I think Birch is still the alpha there. I don't know if that's going to be the case by the end of the year, though. Um, sure. Mateo, if it's not, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Mateo's really good. I mean, I've said my piece about Tatum. He's he's very good as well. He's impressing. Um, and I think just think there's more depth than expected. And maybe that's the way to put it. And they just have to get guys on the field. The only thing I would just add to this conversation is with, with Funa and pass coverage. I would just say stop. Like he's just not. He's just. Yeah. It's, it's no, a problem. Yeah. Like just rush him. He's mm-hmm. he's good when he's getting up field and rushing the passer. Like that's where he's had his best plays in his career at Oregon. Um, I mean, even I guess I guess technically his best play was the interception he had where he was kind of in coverage where he leaked out and picked off a screen pass. But when he gets when he's running downfield, and you saw it on one of the the pass interference calls. He's just it's 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 tough for him. It's not optimal for his body type or his athleticism for him to be out in space like that. He when he again when he's heading up field, he can make things happen. Um, but I was also it's notable he didn't play a ton and he didn't play in the opener. Um, I don't know if that's we have no idea on injury or health if that's playing a role here or if it's just a case of like hey some of these young guys are are are, are making a name or if it's just certain personnel packages where they're not featured as much because of matchups. It's hard to know these sort of things. Now that's also Mm -hmm. the other part to the play count is how much of this is just matchup related. And maybe next week we'll look up and go, Oh wow. Birch played 65 snaps and and Mateo played 23. And it's, it's a much different picture. We'll see. I I think Mateo is their best pass rusher right now. Besides Dorless, over like, Dorless, from, from an, you might be like, from yeah, yeah, yes, from from this group that we're talking about, Dorless is their best defensive player. Um, I, I think, I I think their best pass rusher from this subgroup of players, it, it's Mateo. Mm-hmm. We probably haven't even talked enough about how good Dorless was on rewatch. Like he was a game wrecker. <laughs> I mean, you yeah, because again, the stat, the stat sheet, the stat sheet doesn't even tell half the story with him, and that was the case last year. Because remember, I don't have the figures here, but Jared, you might remember how many pressures he had, even though I think he only had three or four sacks all season. I think he still he had, had one like of the highest. 42. Pressure. He had like one of the highest pressure rates. Total for pressures, an, yeah. Line, yeah, for, for an interior lineman in the Pac-12. And I think it was like pretty decent compared to, to some of the other conferences too. All right, we're going to end it with this one. And I'm wondering if this is going to be a little redundant to what we just talked about. So my bad if it is. But um, from at 541 Ducks, are we subbing too many guys on defense? I'm sure Dan knows better than all of us, but it seemed a bit weird seeing the likes of Shipley and Winston playing more than anticipated in key periods of the game, especially with added depth at those spots. Um, Shipley and Winston didn't play that much in this game. I think I read it earlier. I think it's 22 combined snaps. Um, And part Mm -hmm. of me thinks the reason those guys played as much as they did in the opening game, and again, some of those might just be their, their personnel packages that, lend themselves more to them and they opened in one of those. But I think the absence of Tuioti, the absence of Funa provided a, a, an opportunity for those guys to play a ton in the opener. They didn't play a lot on Saturday. And when they were out there, it wasn't fantastic. Again, Shipley has a hard time athletically, similar kind of conversation to Funa. I think both those guys are tweeners basically where it's like 
should they be putting a hand down? Should they be shedding weight and trying to play outside linebacker? And it's like neither of it's perfect. It doesn't really work entirely. So they're just trying to find roles for these guys. Um, I don't know if they're subbing too many players. Like I'm just looking at the total here. They I mean, they played 26 players on defense on Saturday. Um, about 20 of them played 20 snaps or more. And mm-hmm. then there's a bunch of guys who played far fewer than that um, or, or fewer than that, I should say. I didn't get to feel like it was causing problems, but I don't know. It's also the Texas heat where it was like 90 degrees and you probably want to be careful with playing a guy like every 100% what it was. You know? 100% so what it was. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I don't know if I'm super concerned. I don't know if I think Matt clearly agrees. Jared, do you have any other thoughts on this? My thoughts are, are, are pretty simple. Um, it's very hard to sub too many guys when you're, you're playing a defense and you're playing in college football. Like you want as many people as you can that you have confidence in it's the key word there to get onto the field and get your guys fresh reps like the reason brandon dorless was able to come in and wreak havoc towards the end of the game was that he had legs he had strength in his legs and he had um like stamina still left in him to go after shuck at the final end of the game and i had been preaching about this all fall camp is that oregon probably feels like they have enough dudes on the defensive line and i guess elsewhere that they can run in situational packages and they can run guys in and out of the lineup. Like the depth compared to last season where they had to rely on Brandon Dorless every single down or DJ Johnson or whoever it was in the defensive line last year. Like that's not a thing this year. Like if they want to take Dorless off, they can just move Jordan Birch to the inside and let him go there. Like that's such a huge upgrade to compared to what it was last year where you took Brandon Dorless off sorry, but you put Trevin Mai on. Like That's a clear upgrade. Um, so I think that plays into it. I don't think that they're subbing too many guys. I think the outside linebacker thing is something to monitor, something to keep an eye on just in terms of what like what is the rotation there. And I think it's a lot of like personnel packages because um, for the most part, like all those off- outside linebackers, uh, outside linebackers, except for Tatum, got into the game like they played all under like 15 snaps like they were just out there in little little spurts little little spurts out of 79 total snaps 15 of them that's not a lot of playing time like tatum was the only dude to get out there so i think that moving any everybody out is because they have the personnel now to do it and the texas heat and they don't have to worry about um the red shirt rule so we'll, we'll see in game five what what, what it really looks like because then the red shirt will come into effect but I don't think it's going to look too much different than what it does now. I, it's I, I I view this as they're just keeping guys fresh when they can substitute. They're gonna they're gonna take the opportunity if it if it makes sense to do that. They're not just throwing guys out there um, in hockey lines, but if if they've got the ability to to keep players fresh for the second half, you know they're gonna do that. I'd be curious to know the snap counts, or the, the times that Shipley. And Winston played. I I would think, just from my my hypothesis would be they played in the first half, and and find twenty two snaps for a Mateo and a Birch, uh, and a, a Tatum to save for the next you know in the second half when you want your best players out there and you keep them fresh just because of the heat. I mean it was hot, but you know they've they've been in in heat before. But this is also like what what do we see in the month of September the first fruit few weeks of the, of the year across college football, not just at Oregon. We see guys cramp. We see the, the conditioning issues. We see teams that are 
in shape. And, you know, Oregon's I, – I think Oregon's just doing everything they can that makes sense to prevent that stuff from happening in the fourth quarter so that you don't have to pull a guy off because he's completely gassed or because he's battling cramps and you need your best player on the field. I actually had one thought because Jared brought up the the red shirt thing. Are we are we thinking that Tuioti purchase and Mateo? I, I mean, Mateo is obviously not redshirting, and I think Tatum is mm-hmm. not redshirting, even though he's only played one game. Purchase, like, do we agree? I think all three of those guys are going to play over the, over the four game minimum or max. I, I think I the line is. I think the line should be two and a half. It's probably one of those easy ones where you you take the over. Yeah, I agree. And, and I, I just to I guess recap the freshman who played. I will say, and I um, I'll say who it is first, and then I'll make a, a, an addendum to what what we saw out there. Um, offensively, it was Sadiq and Poncho were the only true freshmen who got in the game. Um, we've run through those three defensive players. Terrence Green, Cole Martin also were in the participation chart. I have Jared said post game he didn't think he saw Terrence Green play. I had a uh, I don't know if it's a family member or somebody who just is as familiar with Terrence reach out to me and say that they, he did not play. And uh, I, so I, this, I forgot to say this um, off air with us yesterday, Nate Oregon's SID texted me while I was in transit saying he did not play. They are getting him removed from okay. participating. Per- perfect. Okay. Just wanted to get that one out there. And then Luke Dunn also the, the punter got in there and, and had his first, mm-hmm. his first punt of the season. So that was the, the list. So seven true freshmen play, not eight. And I'll, I'll go in there and, and make adjustments for, for the story I posted Sunday when the participation chart reflected that green did play, which we were all a little bit skeptical of at the time anyway. All right. That's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Thank you for submitting the questions. We really appreciate it. We'll be back later this week with more recaps from Dan's uh, Monday night press conference and Tuesday's interviews with players. Uh, We'll have hopefully uh, someone on that covers the Hawaii rainbows um, to come on the show to preview this game, and then we'll make our game picks later on this week as well. Until then, you've been listening to the Austin Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace. Hello, everyone. It's Michael Richards here. You might have seen me on CBS working on their Champions League coverage over the last couple of years. I wanted to tell you about an exciting new podcast that I've been working on. It's called The Rest is Football. It's me, alongside Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer, two absolute legends of the game. The show combines topical debate from the world of soccer along with outrageous tales from our careers. And I mean, outrageous. Just search The Rest is Football wherever you get your podcasts. All the best from Big Meets. When you have sports mixed with your pop culture, along with humor and celebrity interviews, your earbuds are enjoying the Rich Eisen Show. Dan Orlovsky, are you still a Jaden Daniels is the best quarterback available in the draft guy? I think the three things that make it stand out for me are, number one, I think his ball placement versus man coverage is the best in the draft. Every quarterback in the NFL is accurate. He's got the best on tape. Number two, most transferable stuff to the NFL. And then I think the third thing is pocket peace. Search for the Rich Eisen Show on YouTube or wherever you listen.